Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 130 of Manage the Wild. I'm Nick Madsen. Today, we're going to be sitting down with wildlife biologist Randall McBride, who is also finishing up his master's research on elk. So sit back, enjoy. Hello, everybody. I'm sitting here with Randall McBride, a wildlife biologist who is currently finishing up some research. So today we're going to talk about a little bit of his research as well as he's a biologist over nuisance and depredation. Thanks for sitting down with me, Randall. Yeah, no problem. So this winter, it's been brutal. It's been a rough winter. Yeah, it has. How has this one, because I've worked with you before in the past, how has this one been so different from everything else? I think this year, so I went through a pretty bad winter in 2017. Um, I think this year what was different is it was longer. So it just started out earlier, and it just has lasted longer. It wasn't necessarily, I mean, it is more snow, I guess, than we had in 2017 when I worked um, that winter, but it's just been longer. So, like, the animals have come in, and they've had to survive longer through a lot more winter, and it just still it doesn't seem like it's letting up. We're starting to get spring, and then we get these cold storms that comes in, and it just, it's still killing off animals as, as we go forward. So, So nuisance and depredation. What's the challenge you've been facing this year with those? Um, depredation, obviously. Um, so depredation, you know, like that's where animals come in and uh, destroy things that, in this case, like commercial agricultural product, like haystacks, for instance, especially this winter, or feed rows and things like that, where, you know, you've got elk and deer in the wrong places because they've been pushed so far down because there's so much snow. So their traditional wintering habitat is either covered in deep snow or covered in houses so they have to go somewhere and these ag properties are open so they end up there and there's free food as it turns out so that's been really difficult um as far as the nuisance problem um we've had a lot more moose in town in the winter than we usually do um so those are public safety issues could injure people you know people get hurt um because moose are pretty big and and dangerous as it turns out a lot more so than cougars (laughs) um but then the other biggest part of nuisance that we've struggled with is just trying to clean up all the dead animals because with a winter like this, you know, things just starve to death and they're just dead and get buried in snow. And then this time of year, they all show up and people want them gone immediately. And there's only so many of us and we get to them when we can. So This is the greatest time of year for, for nuisance calls, I remember, because now the snow and the moisture has been soaking on them. So when you go to grab these animals, they are just... There, it's like pulling socks is what I used to call it. You yeah. grab a hold of their legs and all the hair slips off and they just stink. Yeah, they can be pretty bad. Sometimes they can be pretty gone too, like if things have been eaten on them all winter and then it's just a bunch of bones, which is actually quite nice. So, What is your average amount of calls for nuisance and depredation um, normally? On average, I'd say 150 on a busy month, 200 on average. And that's dead animals mostly or injured animals, deer usually, and depending on the season, could be birds, snakes, bats, whatever. What have you averaged this winter? Um, so, like, I think last month was 750 calls. That's and then so much. April, or I mean not April, we're in April, sorry. February was, it's the shortest month, and I think we had 600 calls just in February, and January was probably four or 500 calls, so. How many people are on your staff? Um, there are Five, including myself. Covering 600 calls. Yeah, and that's depredation and nuisance, and so not just nuisance. So half of them cover nuisance and half cover depredation. So. And you have, if I understand correctly from what I remember, you have a legal yeah. obligation to one of them. To depredation, yeah. We legally, by state code and rule, we have to do depredation. Nuisance, it's not required. It's kind of like a service that we provide. So when... and. When it comes to nuisance, there's a hierarchy. If it comes to public safety, that's number one. Injured animals and nuisance live animals are number two, and then dead happens to be the last, unfortunately, which does make people the maddest, unfortunately, because who wants a dead deer in their backyard, right? Yeah. No. I'll always remember some of the people I've gone and picked up deer from. Like one guy helped pick a deer up, and he wanted to help, and he grabbed the back end. I had the front and the deer split in half and just dumped all over his legs and just it's beautiful <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I just love uh picking up dead deer from people's house and then you get the ones that have a wedding and they're just panicked and they give you a rake and want you to rake up the hair good times yeah last week i had to euthanize a buck that had two shattered back legs from being hit by a car he went down two flights of stairs behind this building where he couldn't get out 
And so this cop and I had to go down. Um, and uh, he, with two shattered back legs, he stood up and charged me. So we had to wrestle with him to get him down and, and euthanize him, unfortunately. And then we had to get him out of two flights of stairs. So that was pretty fun. <laughs> no moose in uh, going through windows this year? Not this year. No moose, thankfully. That's, That's awesome. always fun. Yeah. No, that is never fun. We did have a deer go through a window this year. At a residential? Yeah. They were able to just chase it out. So. <laughs> I always love those videos when they're in the, they go in the homes and they got their cameras and the deer comes flying through. You said you had a lot more moose calls. Those are always challenging. I found that those seem to be the most time consuming. Yeah, we did one in a city that's kind of more of like urban sprawl, like meets wildland area. It was behind a preschool and we had to dart a mom and two babies all at the same time. So took two dart guns. I took two shots. They were all down pretty quick within, within a minute of each other we were able to get the trailer right to him, but it was a lot of work. We had one almost went to a river that we did our darted when she went down and almost went to a high flowing river. And that would have been bad for her and us. So luckily she right on the edge of the bank before she went in, we had to get up this really steep hill to get her out, but we got her out. So out of all the nuisance calls, do you have a, a favorite animal that you like responding to versus others, or they all just proved to be challenging in their own right? Hmm. I really like, I guess, guess the thing I like most about nuisance is the hands-on wildlife experience, just dealing with wildlife hands-on, um, which I feel like a lot of jobs don't really get in the division. Um, but I feel like my favorite is handling like public safety issues, cougars, bears, moose, those type of issues. Cause there's kind of a lot at stake and it takes a lot of teamwork and, um, things coming together to make them work and help them work out hopefully for the better for the animal and the people usually. And so I really like those and I feel like nuisance is kind of fun because it's, you can solve an issue and go to the next one. Even if it's a same issue, like picking up a dead deer, it's still different. There's always a different challenge with that, which I really like. So there is nothing that college or any education could prepare me for when going and responding to a nuisance call. You had no idea what you were getting into. Yeah. Like you get called in and somebody tells you, you got a herd of elk and you walk up and it's a bunch of jerseys, but then you get the vice versa. Somebody's like, you got a couple of deer stuck in a fence and then you find a whole herd of elk. And it just, I was always unprepared. I felt. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You get the information from the, from the office that the reporting party gave to them and you're like, okay, that sounds pretty straightforward. And you get there and it's not straightforward at all. Like a deer in a foundation. Yeah. The one call that we were talking about earlier that I keep going back to is that moose in the church. It was a two-tier level parking lot. And we had the situation fairly under control. And then the public started showing up. And they just started freaking out, thinking we were going to shoot the moose. And it went from a very normal situation where we dart it to a very tense situation very quickly just because people just lack the context when they come in to these situations and so not only is it challenging in my opinion to work with wildlife but it's even more difficult to work with people around wildlife yes very much so how uh let's go into depredation depredation is a challenge how do you work with depredation in solving these issues so i guess with depredation the, the tough part is and it's it's like nuisance you know it's we have to how do I like to say it? We're trying to manage expectations. We can't really solve depredation in a lot of cases. It's more mitigating depredation. There are some things we can solve, like haystack damage. We can go and we can, if there's enough money, we can get a permanent fence and put that around a haystack or have the, give it to the landowner. They can put it around their haystack. Solves the problem, right? Wildlife still come to the property, but now they can't get in the haystack. So that's one example of where we can solve it. But like where we've got these places where elk and deer have been habituated to coming there because either a that's where they've always come and now there's a field there or tree like orchard trees or something like that or you know they've come there because now they get free food and like hey this is a good place i can survive and raise my young and get them to the next area because you know we've got these extended routes and as it turns out fields tend to be watered and so there's food there and water so we try to manage those expectations and try to mitigate some of that damage, whether that's by doing payments through, you know, taxpayer payments, um, or like doing removals. Like a lot of times we can come in and do some removals or we can have like the public do it, which is the preferred way we'd like to do it is like giving out 
tags and vouchers for the public to come in and remove some of those animals so they can take that meat home. It's usually for antler dis- antlerless animals. Um, so those are some of the options we have with that. So, Is there an animal in depredation that's proven to be the most challenging to work with? Um, elk, I would say, are pretty challenging to work with. Deer have their challenges as well, but elk, because they're in larger herds generally, um, they're in and out and they do respond to hazing and stuff like that, but they also are pretty like, okay, we haze, we're hazed out, we'll come back a couple hours later and they're back, you know, right back in the same field. So they can be pretty difficult. And a lot of times they figure out they're hunted during the day. So then they come at night when they know they can't be hunted. Cause you know, as humans, we're creatures of habit and we have laws and rules that we have to abide by and no hunting at night. So elk can figure that out. Has there been tactics that have proven to be more useful than others in reducing depredation? Um, lethal removals by hunters or um, employees has been probably the most effective. It's not the preferred method because, I mean, we don't want to come in and kill every animal there, right? That's just not. We want to manage these populations so people can hunt and enjoy them however they enjoy them, you know, into the future. We don't want to exterminate or depopulate these populations. So, What, uh, what would determine lethal removal versus hazing or some of those other options? Usually it's management plan um, related. So depending on where the herds are in the management plan, like, or according to that management plan that are set by, like, through our public process, right? And so depending on where that is, like, if we're under objective in an area, say, for instance, with deer, we're not likely going to sh- jump to, le- to lethal removals because we don't want to reduce that population more than it already is. Now, that depends on the area, too. I mean, if we're talking, like, an urban environment where these animals are not going up the mountain, like and they're not available to hunters, then that would be somewhere where we would use lethal, even in an area where we might have less, we might be below population objective. But if we're above population objective, um, and we're not planning on upping that objective for any reason, because we think we're at a good level, then we would probably use lethal removal in those areas. Because, you know, as I've heard some people say, we don't want to grow wildlife off the backs of public landowners or private landowners, you know, like in a sense, that are our farmers and ranchers that are trying to make a living off the land. So, Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Um, what uh, I get a lot of questions, or at least I did when I worked in wildlife, what happens to those animals when you're doing lethal removal? Do we just dump them in the landfill? or? No, all those animals need to be donated, um, with the exception if an animal's sick or injured, if, if we can tell there's something wrong with it and it's not hit fit for human consumption, we wouldn't donate that. But we try to donate every animal that we lethally remove to somebody on our lists of, you know, that are, are looking for that meat, whatever it is, whether it's deer, pronghorn, um, elk, or whatever we happen to euthanize for lethal removal, we try to try to get those out, whether that's depredation situation, nuisance, or something else. If it's an injured animal, like nuisance hit by a car, we generally don't donate those unless someone's there at the moment that wants it, because the meat could be questionable depending on how long it's been injured or how bad it's beaten up. I mean, there might be some salvageable, but it's not something we call down our list to try to find somebody to donate in most cases. But, you know, for our depredation, we try to donate 100% of that. And even with urban deer situations, same thing, 100% of those that are removed have to be donated too. So I like that. Earlier, you talked about managing expectations. Is that like because of a seasonal thing? Because obviously the animals aren't going to stay there permanently. Is that what you're... Can you talk about, like, the seasons of depredation that you experience? Yeah, so, like, with nuisance, depredation, any, anything with wildlife, there's a season, right? If you think about it, um, winter season, what's going on during winter? Well, animals are moving down off the mountain to where there's less snow, where there's still forage available, where they can access that to keep their guts ruminating, and so they can live through the winter until they get to spring green up and can start gaining that fat back again, right? So we've got them coming in. They're going into haystacks and or feed rows and things like that for depredation. Um, you know, other things you see for the nuisance side of it is we've got animals crossing roads and migrating, so there's more animals hit. So you're going to have a lot more injured deer certain times of the year than you do the rest of the time of year. So those calls take to, tend to take a lot more effort too because you're focusing on that kind of stuff. And then we move into spring and things change there. So animals start to move up the mountain, so depredation drops off a lot. In a lot of areas, some areas you'll see more spring depredation as the spring green out comes up and there's still snow above, like deer especially in the spring will hang around in the fields longer than the elk will. 
and they'll eat on alfalfa as it starts to green up when it's really tender. Um, and then they'll start to move up. And so as they move, again, more injuries. And then we also like nuisance. We have baby birds, baby deer, people picking up all kinds of stuff, you know. So we, that picks up in, during the springtime. And then summer hits, as things start to dry out, you see animals start to move back down to where those wet green patches are. Especially where it's more high elevation fields, you'll see those animals come in a lot more because it's easy to get to, right? They don't need to be up far near the springs and stuff, so they'll be there. And then fall comes, so we'll have, you know, feel or right before fall hits, you know, bunch of hay field damage, corn or not corn, uh, alfalfa damage and stuff like that. Animals and fields eating as as it's growing, and then we hit fall, and that's when things taper off again as they move until winter hits, and then we'll see the haystack repeating again. So, so a lot of the people you're working with are repeat customers so yeah. to speak yeah so when it comes to managing expectations it's usually our newer people or like we do turkey depredation is another thing where that's just like turkeys coming in and the rules are a little bit different there we don't really pay for damages on anything even ag related for that there's just not any funds set aside for that but it's like we do some lethal removals through tags and things like that and so that's managing those expectations because people think a lot of times we're going to come in and solve their problem immediately. And that's the same with big game depredation is they say, hey, there's these elk here. I need them gone. Well, it's not as simple as just like coming in and rounding up a bunch of elk and taking them back up the mountain. I mean, that takes a lot of money and manpower and effort, which we have don't have very much of any of those, unfortunately. And then just taking them back up the mountain, they're just going to come back or the next herd's going to move in. It's kind of like removing a predator out of, a, out of a, an area. Something fills that void. So you take these deer out or these elk, something's going to fill that void. It's just a natural draw for those animals. So it's just a continuing issue, which is really what's tough about depredation. If you want to solve things, depredation is difficult because it's not an easy problem to solve in a lot of reasons. Nuisance, you know, you pull somebody's dead deer out, problem solved. They're happy, right? But it's also managing expectations with nuisance. Like people call about hawks um, having nests in their neighborhood and they're swooping down and chasing people and it's like well unfortunately there's nothing we could do about that we have to wait till the hawk babies fledge and then they'll move on and that and that problem will be solved but you know people expect this is going to be solved right away i've heard somebody say people want wildlife manicured and i feel like that's a lot of where we're going these days is people want wildlife where they want it and not where they don't whatever that means for them so yeah, and everybody has different expectations. Can you talk about evaluating a property for damage and the process you go? Because a lot of people think the government can come in and pay, but there's limited funds. Yeah, so usually somebody calls, and if it's somebody new, we try to go out and take a look at that property to see if there's depredation actually happening, you know, make sure that what they're claiming is true. Most of the time, that's been true. People have wildlife on properties. I mean, especially in a lot of these wildland areas, as there's houses in these fields or you know things are just kind of willy-nilly animals find those those fields really easily so we go and check them make sure there's usually animals there they're coming in or sign of them a lot of times most people are happy with just depredation tags so they'll those are ones where they can go and harvest some antler ant, antlers animals try to ma maintain that population lower on their property because they're killing off the ones that are having the babies so that hopefully helps them to you know recoup some costs in a sense because they're getting free meat basically that they can take and now eat or they can give to their family and they can eat or you know i mean with that meat with the state you can they can write a donation slip and give it to their friend if they really want to so you know they kill a few animals a lot of people are pretty happy with that others you know it's more than that they want more done so they'll do some removals we'll do some removals or we'll come in and we'll do like night counts for like like summertime springtime see how many animals are there or day counts depending on where the animals are coming when they're coming in we work with the landowner to try to figure that out and we'll count and then we do like a average over x amount of days and we say like for instance here we're doing elk or doing 10 10 pounds per day is what they eat on average is what we say here in the state and they so then we take that and multiply it times how many days days and see how many pounds are eating and then figure out about what the tonnage is and then pay based off what the market averages or receipts that they're selling it for. And then we send them a check for that, for the payment. And that's not everybody. I mean, not everybody has something that can be paid. There's certain qualifications that you have to meet to get into the program. It has to be commercial agriculture. You know, it can't just be 
like Joe Blow with the horse in his backyard because that's just not a commercial product and there is limited funds so that money's meant to help those that are really experiencing that problem. That's a challenge. You know what's awesome? The fact that we're sitting in your truck right now and there's an absolute awesome thunderstorm passing through and the lightning's going everywhere. This is the fact that I like the, to be able to ride around with biologists and meet biologists and sit in their trucks and talk with them is the fact that you get to, you wouldn't get this in the studio. No. <laughs> you said something earlier that I wanted to touch on really quick. Yeah, go ahead. You said, you know, that college doesn't prepare you for this. Not, that, not this job. And I don't, I'm, and I think in a lot of ways, a lot of the division jobs, it doesn't prepare you for. And I was just in a conference last week, and this came up in one of the talks. They were looking at what can, and they were looking at a specific agency in general, but it was more like she brought up this point of like, she wanted to have a discussion at the end of her talk. What can they do better at a university level to prepare people for these jobs? They were looking at USDA APHIS, right? So they were looking at what can we do to prepare people f with undergraduate degrees for USDA APHIS. And which, that's basically all depredation. Too. Yeah, it's all depredation, just like for airports and, and anything federally protected, right? So that's with wildlife services, what we call them. And uh, so they were asking that question, and a lot of it, there's a lot of head scratching because it's like, and if you've been in the field and you've gone to college, you can be like, hey, yeah, I mean, we gained a lot of terms, we gained a lot of information, but it seems like some people need more than that or others need something else. And there's just a lot that you don't know coming into the field you're not prepared for because you're just, it's hard to train in a classroom, I feel like, in a lot of cases. And I almost think that one of the things that would have been beneficial to me is like a communications degree because I found myself working far more with public than I thought I would. And in those situations, people are often upset. Yeah. And I mean, like, that was some of the things they came up with is one of the biggest things they're missing is, like, de-escalation, like, communication, like, how do you work through difficult situations with, with the public or people, right? And and as you mentioned, like, some of these landowners are really upset and, and understandably, right? Like, they see this as an attack on their livelihood. So this is the division of wildlife's... Um, trying to take that step to be a good partner now obviously the program's not perfect and not everybody's going to be happy on either side like division the hunters aren't going to be happy like i mean you think about it as a hunter do you want people out there killing and removing wildlife probably not that doesn't sound like something you want to happen right i mean which is why we try to go through this process to be like okay these are targeted removals we're not doing it on every property right we're trying to where do these animals make sense to be removed and where do they don't you know like if these animals are on BLM property every day, and they're going to be available for hunters, that's not an area we're likely going to do this, right? But So this is what the division's trying to do. And, like, the landowners aren't always going to be happy. Hunters aren't always going to be happy. We're not always happy with how it works out. But depredation and nuisance, it's kind of one of those things that's just not everybody's going to be happy 100%. Can't ever meet somebody's expectations fully with these programs. I remember walking into a situation uh, with a dairy you were involved in this, but the dairy was getting elk in the manger with the cows feeding along with the cows. So it's not like we could fence out the elk because they were already in the manger. And it was just a challenging situation. Yeah. And there's just a not enough time in the day for us or the farmer to try and rectify every situation. Yeah. Now we got hail. This is even better. <laughs> Awesome. Let's talk about your research. You just finished up doing research on a large piece of public property or private, private property. Yep. Can you talk about that research? I think it's fascinating. Yeah. So hopefully I do it justice and hopefully you'll ask me the right questions. So if I miss anything. Um, but yeah, so I just finished my master's research on uh, um, elk and how they respond to hunting pressure. So I had a bunch of cow elk collared on a piece of a large piece of property, probably like about 300,000 acres, give or take, probably take um, a little bit. But um, so we had about 30 ish cow elk collared on this property. There's about 2,500 elk on the property year round. Um, it's a pretty large property that has sagebrush step all the way up into mountainous Aspen and conifer, conifer area. Um, so they have a pretty wide-ranging area that they can go. There's a working cattle ranch on the property. They also have a lot of hunting and fishing activities on the property. 
Um, so it's a lot of private hunting, um, but these are free ranging again, wild elk. So they are not confined to the property, but they just do like to stay on it because there's not a lot of pressure on there. Um, so what I looked at is how do elk respond to the hunting pressure during the hunting season? Uh, cow elk specifically, actually. So we start it, they start their hunts in about mid to late August and their hunts run all the way from mid to late August until they can run up to the end of January. They're generally done hunting about beginning of January. So they hunt deer, antlered deer, antlered elk, um, antlered moose, um, pronghorn, I think both sexes, and then elk, cow elk as well. So they hunt all these species on there um, in various levels. So the elk are probably the most hunted. There's the most tag for the elk. And then deer would be second, pronghorn third, and then moose are very limited. They only take one or two off every year. So what we did is we looked at all the hunting that was going on on the property. Um, and we had guides. So all, all the, pretty much all the hunts are guided. So we had the guides take a GPS. And they had a GPS that was taking locations every 10 minutes. And the cow elk collars were set for every 10 minutes. And we wanted to see how they responded throughout the entire hunting season. So we looked at... Um, when for the most part antlered hunting season which I'm going to call the rut is like August to right about the beginning of November so they hunt all their antlerless animals in that period archery rifle um, muzzleloader I think it's mostly just rifle and archery there might be one or two guys that use muzzleloader but it's pretty limited um, and so th as they were hunting those we wanted to track and see how did the cow elk, re cow elk respond to these hunters when they're not being targeted so we looked at that, and then we looked from November to beginning of January. That's when the cow elk were being targeted, and we wanted to see how they reacted when being targeted. So what we found was, um, what a lot of studies has found, was one of the things we looked at was, do they avoid roads to avoid hunters? Well, as it turns out, elk do avoid roads. We saw that in our study, especially when they're being targeted. Um, we also looked at, um, is it habitat that's causing them to move uh, away from hunters what type of habitat are they selecting and it seemed like they weren't really selecting habitat so much as they were just looking to escape hunters so they actually didn't choose more rugged terrain they chose something that was less rugged as a faster escape route right what we noticed was during the antlered hunting season they didn't respond to hunters hardly at all surprisingly what what do you think the difference I mean, that just blows me away that the cow elk that you're targeting with your collars don't respond as much to antlered. To antlered hunting? Yeah. Yeah, I think the reason for that is just because um, they know they're not being targeted. Like, they have figured out, like I said earlier, you know, we're very much creatures of habit. Our hunting season times are set. Um, our species types are set within those bounds. And elk, you know... I wouldn't say they're the smartest animal on the planet, right? But they can figure things out. Like, they know about when to start rutting. They know about when um, hunting season is going to start. So they've got these things figured out. Their antler growth is tied to night lengths, right? So they lose their antlers and start growing new ones because of, um, I think it's serotonin and melatonin levels, right? So, um so this is just another cycle that they've figured out because we've been so consistent throughout the years on how we do this. I mean, give or take a week, but that doesn't matter much to an elk. As soon as they know they're being targeted, even if we start a week earlier, they're going to figure out and jump right on that schedule. Are the antlered animals being hunted at the same time as the antlerless? No. If a, if a, if a bull elk is being targeted, the cows aren't necessarily affected by that. Yeah, and we saw that because we could see hunters coming within... I, the closest I looked at, for sure, I didn't look at all of the interactions, but with 17 meters, the cow elk and a hunter were apart during the bull elk hunting season. And she just sat there. The hunter I talked to said he saw her, she saw him, and he walked right by her, and she didn't move. She didn't move. Nothing. Nope. But then as soon as they were targeted specifically. Yeah. And if, you, if I had my little visuals here, you could see it really well. It's really cool with the visuals, but... You can see in uh, when they're in targeted, th instead of just moving kind of just willy-nilly, you know, wherever, where they kind of want to go, as soon as they come in contact with the hunter, they immediately m increase their rate of speed until they break contact with that hunter, and then they reduce speed to minimize the amount of 
disturbance that they're causing while the hunter's there. We also saw that they moved more at night than they do during the day, especially around dusk, because that's the time they're becoming more active to avoid hunting, right? And so we saw that as well. And so as soon as they come in contact with the hunter during the cow hunt, they would immediately disengage until they were able to break contact and then reduce speed to hide, as it were, theoretically from the hunter. So, Did you see uh, like a minimum distance or a required distance they had to be before they stopped? It was about 0.5 kilometers is when they started to move away from that hunting pressure. That doesn't seem very far at all. No. How uh, did uh, hunting group size affect? So we tried to look at hunting group size. We, we tried to look at a several things with the study, and unfortunately, because what we did is we had the guides taking a survey before they went hunting and, w and when they went out hunt or after they got back hunting because we needed to track the number of the GPS and then the species that they were hunting, you know, all those types of data. We tried to look at group size. Sometimes it was left off, which was really unfortunate, so we had to really dump this. We couldn't really look at group size. I do think it could affect, but group size were so, were so variable to the ones we got. We got groups of two because guide and hunter and up to groups of seven because some of these guys bring camera crews with them or friends and things like that. So I think group size would matter depending on the rate of hunting um, or the, the, the amount of guys you had in your group. Um, but it's something that we just couldn't look at here. Um, something else that we tried to look at was hunter experience which turned out to be really subjective instead of objective. So we What? Yeah, I know. Hunters? <laughs> so what I, what I did was I asked the guides, are they beginner, intermediate, or advanced? So I tried to ask them, like, what are your thoughts? Like, tried, But it turns out, you know, not every guide's the same, and they wouldn't necessarily judge the same. So we had to throw that one out. The other one that I really, really thought would be interesting and I wish somebody would do is – we tried to look at how many shots they shot and when they shot it to see if sound mattered. If like, okay, there's a sound in this area. Does that affect elk nearby that are collared? You probably need more collared elk than we had. But it was so inconsistent. They only wrote the time down and some guys shot 10 shots and we didn't know if that was all within a five-minute time limit or if that was like 10 shots for the day or how many shots, you know. I, so that one really would have been interesting, but we couldn't use that one, unfortunately. But something else we did find is during the archery season, I did forget to mention this, is elk did, cow elk also moved away from archers once they were discovered um, because it was more like a surprise. And we almost kind of interpreted that to, um, because archers are more of an ambush predator, kind of like a cougar is, and they're up close that uh, that caused movement and they're moving away from that ambush, right? Like a cougar's like, and, and we do get cougars preying on elk in this area. Um, so that's kind of what we associated that movement was at the beginning of the, the season. Because most of our archery stuff happens like August, that, first, the, that last week in August and September. So we saw some movement from that. But it was way more significant, uh, the movement we saw during the targeted hunt, than it was at that point. So That was going to be my question. Could you tell the difference between archery and rifle? Was the distance they traveled less or more? Um, so for the cow elk, they don't use any archery on the cow elk hunt, so it's only rifle. Um, but they did not move as far from the archers um, as they did the rifle hunters. The, the thing to note about the differences in hunts, too, is um, a lot of the cow elk hunting is done with vehicles because we're talking November, December, there's snow, it's colder, you know, Depending on who you are, people aren't necessarily hiking out there. There are some of the groups that are doing that where more of the antlered hunting is not is done from vehicles getting into a spot and then hiking out into the more wooded areas to hunt for the elk. So there is different methods. That was something else we tried to look at is like, does spot and stalk matter? Are you calling? Like, I feel like there's a difference between spotting and stalking and, and waiting versus calling. I think that's where you're going to find your differences, not so much between spot and stalk and waiting. But if there's a calling element to it, I think that's going to affect how the elk behave too. And I think that would be something really interesting to look at. But we also struggled with that because we had like six different methods and some guys did all six in a day and didn't have times when they did them. So we couldn't really look at that either. So, But I think that would be another really interesting element to throw in there and see how do these different hunting methods affect elk behavior and their movement. That is super interesting. Can you talk about coming up with that survey and how important, important those questions are? 
Yeah, so the questions are really important, and as it turns out, really important to make clear. If you want the data that you think you're getting, you have to be very clear. The problem is, too, is you think got to think about how are my guides or your target, whoever they may be, could be anybody, could be, you know, like you're doing a survey for politicians or something, whatever, you know. How's my target going to feel about these questions? Like, am I leading them to an answer? Is this data going to be helpful or is this gee whiz data? Like, is what am I trying to get at with this question? And you got to really got to think about that. And then the other thing you got to think about, which I tried to think about in this, and I think this is where our survey kind of went a little wrong, is I tried to make the surveys as simple as possible because I didn't want to take up any more of the guides' times than they already were taking. Because they're, you know, they're busy. They're working with clients. Like, they're focused on trying to make a successful hunt for these guys, right? They're trying to make sure that they have the, a great experience, right? So I don't need to add extra work to them without, you know, because it's just one more thing that they don't want to do. I mean, thankfully, like, these guys were really excited to do this. But I think if I had to spend, like, you need to spit, be specific on every time that every shot was taken, I think it would have been a bit too time-consuming for them because then they'd have to be over here writing stuff down instead of focusing on their client. And then, well, now maybe we need somebody to go with them, and that's just one more person to the group size, right? But so think about these issues on, like, how can I make this easy but get the data that I want because you don't want to burden people with a 30-minute survey. I mean, we've all done that, right? Because it's like, oh, hey, you might win $50 on Amazon if you do this 30-minute s- s- uh, survey. Yeah, I've done all of those. It got <laughs> 10 cents. Yeah, and it's like, it, well, now what's it worth? I mean, these guys really saw the benefit of the research. Um, so they they were excited about that. I still haven't presented it to them, so hopefully this July I'm going to be able to present that to them when they have their meeting before their hunt start. Um, but I, I think they'll be pretty interested. But I bet you they'll tell me, yeah, we kind of knew that already. But, I mean, it's nice to do the research so we can say, look, scientifically, we've seen this. Because, I mean, we probably all have that where, oh, yeah, we've seen that. Like, I mean, recently we saw Wyoming have some preliminary data come out about elk and deer cohabitating. And it does seem that elk have a negative effect on deer populations if we've got elk populations that are too big. So we've all kind of known that as uh, even biologists that like, hey, the elk seem to be chasing deer out. We've seen elk chase deer out of their primal habitat. Well, we didn't have the research. Now we've got some research to say, yes, this is going on. Because just saying you've seen it doesn't mean it's true in every situation. And like with this research, you take everything with a grain of salt. Mine was on private land. Can we recreate this on public land? It'd be very difficult because as it turns out, when you're working with humans, you have to allow them to opt out. They don't have to participate. Luckily, there was 30 guides. All of them wanted to participate, which is generally unheard of when you're surveying people. Yeah, uh, I don't know of a way you could recreate it in the same unit, same area, unless you offered a specialized hunt. Yeah, or a prize, like a prize or uh, some type of reason that you, uh, yeah, I'd do that because I, I mean, I, you know, I'm getting something out of it. I'm benefiting me somehow. So you brought up an interesting point, but I get it all the time from people. Why are we conducting research when we generally know what's happening? Why would you want to continue to do research when you generally know the outcome of something? So that's, that is a good question. We do get that a lot. Um, the reason you do research is to actually put it to a test, right? I mean, you're taking a hypothesis, which is a question. What was your question? My question? I just wanted to know... How, I mean, specifically, I'm not going to throw it in the scientific jargon because that, that's too much work, right? But uh, just how do elk respond to hunters? Can they tell the difference when they're hunted versus when they're not? Okay, so you have that question of how they're going to react. Yeah. And now you said put it to a test. What does that mean? So that means, like, I mean, this is a natural system. I didn't change anything for it besides putting collars, which, you know, in scientific community, we can argue that's changing something in the system, right? Which it is. You are affecting an elk by adding something to it. We The effect is very minimal, and the stress is very minimal when you do that, even though it is during one of the more wor- more difficult survival times because we're doing it in such quick you know like an instant and so that's minimizing that effect it does have an effect that is hard to account for um but we're not changing anything in the system so we're letting the system play out and we're letting it be as natural as as it's been theoretically right because we're throwing people in it 
And so we just want to see, all right, well, we've got some elk out there, and we've got some hunters, and they've got callers, and we know their GPS locations. All right, what happens? So we look at that. So that's the question we're testing, right? All right, so I want to know, do elk know they're being targeted versus when they're not? Well, as it turns out, this in this one study, which, you know, is great, yeah, looks like they know they're being targeted versus when they're not. Now, we need to try and, I mean, obviously we want to replicate that data, which in science uh, kind of depends. We can replicate it like you just mentioned. Can we do it on a public unit? Probably not because of these extenuating circumstances, right? But theoretically, we should have similar results. I mean, we've seen it. There was a study similar to mine out of BYU, I think it was. And they were looking at just general caller data every two hours. Like, did they notice a shift when the hunt started? And they did. They saw elk leave public land and go to private land where there's less or no hunting pressure at the beginning of the hunt. Now, not all elk did it, but enough of them that it made en- it, it was obvious. And then at the end of the hunts, the elk shifted back from prov- private to public. I can't remember. I think the last guy, the guy's last name is Sergei, um, but I can't remember. But I'm pretty sure it's out of BYU. But it was a good study. Like I thought it, I, it's it. I thought the data was good. So it's maybe something worth looking up at some point. But the reason why, yeah, I like everything you've said. But the reason why I think it's important to recreate studies is everything changes constantly. Nothing stays the same. Mm-hmm. If you were to do this study in five years, five years have passed, there's going to be some change, whether it's habitat or or is there more pressure or less pressure, but it brings better understanding. So by you creating this study and doing the way you did, you created a standard. Now everybody can look at that and then base their next question, whatever that question will be. You know, now they can start looking at overall distance or, you know, I was talking to a biologist about your project the other day, and he talked about how important it was for these private communities like this to understand how important um, their harvest is on cow elk and when to hunt them. Because if you're hunting cow elk, it's pushing the cow elk off your property, and with the cow elk go your bulls. The bulls aren't going to stay. And so now you have this data to back up how you set up your hunt structures and they can start looking at hunter satisfaction across the state using this study to say, okay, maybe we've been doing targeting cows from August, the end of August, all the way through January, and our hunter satisfaction is down on Antlered. And maybe this is the reason, because they're pushing their their cows out so early, it's taking the bulls with them. So I, I just think it's awesome when this type of research happens that things that you because you can start breaking the data apart now and looking at it and be like okay here's another question we should ask if you were to go back and do another study and you had this one under your belt what's another question that you would you've talked about them earlier but what what would be an intriguing thing if you could go back and do let's say a phd what would you ask on this project well, with a PhD, I could ask multiple things, right? So I think my two biggest focuses, if I could re, if I could revisit what I've already done and add to it, would be how does sound, not only fire like firearms going off, but how does vehicle sound, like tracking the vehicles, and um, how does that affect elk movement? Like, I would I would look all year long because I'm I'm only seeing during hunting season, right? I didn't look at elk movement outside of hunting season. Is recreation of like the fishing is that affecting? Are they avoiding those areas? How the thing I wanted to look at, but we had happened during COVID and we lost a bunch of data. But my second question was going to be, how do elk af- respond to the cattle? Uh, yeah. So how do elk respond to the cattle uh, ranch that's there? We wanted to look at. Because they have, they usually, <laughs> COVID unfortunately threw this all against the wall, um, keep very good records about how they move their cows to which pastures, which ones are being rested, when they're supposed to be there. And they have really good records about this, but COVID really messed up everything. So we lost a whole year of data. We had one year of data, we couldn't compare it to anything else. And our callers, because I'm using a battery faster by taking every 10 minute locations, they just didn't have the life, and obviously you can only do a master so long, so we had to cut that out of the project. But I'd love to look at that and how 
humans interact outside of the hunting season. I I would assume that we, as we saw during the targeted hunt, the elk aren't going to be bothered as much by the human part of it. Now the cattle, w- there's been some research on how cow and cows or elk and cattle interact, but I just don't think there's a lot of it out there. And I think seeing it at a high rotational grazing scheme, which is what this ranch does, how does that affect? Because they're moving their cattle more often than other cattle companies may be or may not be, right? Um, so I think that would be something interesting to look at. And the third thing I'd love to look at is just how does hunting method compare? Like I would probably break it up into two. Are you calling or not calling? And then figure out from there, like if they're moving and just look at general movement based off of what they were doing and get that more in a timeline because maybe they're only calling for two hours and then they're spot and stalking and just see how that affects. Cause I feel like calling would affect behavior where sitting and waiting and spotting and stalking. We've already kind of seen that that they'll break contact and move away from that pressure, right? I think that uh, while you were talking, it made me think of something is something we're all seeing is there's more people out on the landscape than there ever was before. And so you're talking about noise. Recreation has to have an impact on these animals some way. That's what we've always believed. And so I had a recreational scientist on my committee and he was very surprised by these results because he said you know we've always believed that human disturbance of any kind affects animals which i think it does i think it just does differently depending on the time of year the disturbance the animal obviously because you're talking about elk an animal that's being hunted right but let's go to pika like up high on the mountain where there's no people in the winter right because they're live in their little domes with their little cool haystacks that they build in their little rock holes, you know. And they're not being affected, but then people come hiking up there late summer, midsummer. So how does that disturbance affect them versus when there's no humans, right? And how do we look at that? And how do we determine what a disturbance is, right? It's hard to know, especially in an animal that's being hunted because maybe they aren't disturbed by humans walking by. But a motorcycle coming by might be something that really bothers them, right? So we've got to look at all disturbances, which a lot of recreational scientists are looking at these. Like, there's wolverine studies out there. Like, how does snowmobiling, cross-country skiing affect wolverines and their use of their habitat during this winter? Because, like, they're all over the place, right? They can climb mountains and go over the top and come back down. So, like, how does that recreational uh, stuff affect them? But with the elk, they've always thought, like in Rocky Mountain National Park, that tourism is really affecting the elk there, but maybe not as much as they've thought. Because if they're not targeted, they just may not care as much. Which we see in Yellowstone, right? Yeah. Did you? Do they break up their seasons, whether they're hunting deer, pronghorn, or elk? Do they break up? Could you tell, like, if they were hunting pronghorn and they fired a shot, how far the elk moved versus if they were hunting the elk themselves? So pronghorn, probably not as much, because pronghorn are down on the desert where the... Um, sagebrushes they're not up in the mountains where the elk are during that time so there we wouldn't be able to see it um you could do it uh, some of the guys are carrying multiple permits so they're hunting deer and elk concurrently so they might be hunting deer at one moment and then see a bunch of elk and immediately switch over so that'd be another thing to try to you know focus on is how to follow that and see that but since they're not hunting anything antlerless i thought it would be some another interesting thing would be like how does antelope hunting affect everything else on the property because we had both uh bucks and does collared for antelope hunting so it'd be interesting to look at the buck side of it and see okay how's our males being affected because they may actually because of their sex may do different things and especially we're talking during the rut or when they're rounding up females how does that affect being hunted like are they selecting different behaviors to try to avoid being hunted but still trying to do what they're trying to do like you know, breed and move on their genetics to the next, to the next year. Right. Like, so how that's another layer that you would need to be looked at. It's like, and you know, this with a lot of science, there's so many things we can look at, but what really matters and what might have an effect, you know, because we tried to look at snowfall, does snowfall have an effect? And these things did not seem to have an effect on the movement when it was related to hunting because the hunters could go anywhere. Right. Yeah. Cause they weren't limited. That's interesting. How would you take the information that you've got from this study and apply it in wildlife management? Now, what gener- what questions would this or what situations could you take this? Because I'm already thinking of a few. Well, let's look at this really quick. So if we've got 
elk and they're overpopulated, right? Let's just say that we've got a population that's overpopulation objective. They're damaging the habitat, but we can't kill enough animals, partially because maybe there's private land or, you know, they're just hard to access. We keep throwing more and more hunters at it, and it's just not working. So if we take this one study and say, all right, this is actually what's happening. This is true. It's probably happening here. And we took it out, and we went out there, and we said, all right, what do we do? Well, if cow elk are smart, we've, which we assuming they are, that they can figure out that we're very much creatures of habit, saying, all right, we're hunting here, this time, these type of animals. Well, we need to eliminate cow elk to try to bring down some of that population. So we have to kill X amount of elk to maintain our population at a certain level that's healthy for all elk, and hopefully deer in this case. All right, so let's switch it up. Let's count, hunt cow elk first. And then hunt bulls second, or let's hunt them concurrently. Like, let's change the start date. Let's change the end date. Let's maybe only hunt them really intense for two weeks. You know, you could change a lot of the way you hunt, which I know is really difficult for hunters because you want to know, when do I plan my hunt? Because I want to go hunt, right? And so, but when you're looking for management, this is what you've got to try to balance. How do we help hunters achieve their goals and meet what they want while still trying to manage the herd? And that's that delicate balance, right? Like, how do we meet those two together? And as it turns out, it's really difficult because you're not only hunting deer, you're not only hunting elk, but you're hunting deer or whatever else on the property. Plus, if it's public land, everybody's using it for whatever else. You know, it's not like limited to hunting only. I mean, private land's the same thing. Cows, if they've got cows, they're using it for something else, not just hunting in most cases. So you're trying to balance all these uses and expectations and so, but if you want to minimize or bring that population down, especially if you're having a lot of depredation hunt or issues, maybe it's time to switch how you hunt. And so that's kind of what this tells me. But the question would be, how long before they adapt? Is it two years, three years, five? Do we need to switch again in two? You know, like that'd be something interesting to look at. But how? Who's going to let you research that, right? <laughs> that you answered it perfectly. That's the kind of the thought I had and that's the other reason why you need continuous research because if you're going to flip up your management style now it presents a whole new set of rules and challenges well wouldn't it be interesting in 10 years when the technology reaches you could take my study and look at every 30 seconds what's an elk doing every 30 seconds what's that hunter doing every 30 seconds you could see actual movement on your map and be like wow this is what they do exactly at every second of the day yeah some of those callers now have cameras It'd be interesting to see in your study if a cow had a collar the moment a shot was made, what is their initial reaction? How would they react? Yeah, that'd yeah. Be really I mean, it's just as uh, as technology gets better and better. Yeah, we're seeing biologgers on animals now to see heart rate and things like that. There's a collar. Really? Yeah, they've just been doing some up at the ranch up here. Put some biologgers on. I think it's Stoner. It's doing it. Putting biologgers on to see how deer are reacting and stuff and they're getting heart rates and yeah so we're starting to see some of that technology yeah and then they're taking blood to look at you know different types of nutrition and what's going on at different types of year like there's phd student work on that and how they what's what's important summer range versus um winter range and as it turns out they're both important (laughs) yeah absolutely but for different reasons exactly and depending on the year yeah it's like this year there, there's. It, we, this is a whole new set of challenges than they would have had last year, because it's a completely different year. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. That's awesome. Well, do you have any good uh, stories? One, one story you'd like to share that you just when you think of wildlife, wildlife management, because you've worked in what Idaho. You've worked in Idaho. You've worked here, Wyoming, Colorado, Washington. Yeah, you've worked all over. When you think about your your career in wildlife. What's one story that stands out? Oh, man, there's several. I'll end up with killing something. (laughs) (laughs) That's just the way it ends up. (laughs) Not that I want to kill things all the time, but you just have to. Some of those, yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, I guess probably one of my biggest claims to fame is that another technician and I, his name's Dustin, we were working in Colorado my first job, we caught the first ever flying squirrel in Colorado. First ever documented, let's say that. Because I'm sure they've been there. <laughs> first ever documented flying squirrel in Colorado. Congratulations. Yeah, Look at it's you. It's super exciting. There's a paper like about that long, really short, about it. 
So it made it into some manuscript. But That's cool because you were also involved in, I guess, the first documented collaring of a wolverine in utah as well yeah look at you man of many firsts um uh yeah probably my most probably my most memorable and not for the reason you'd think is um and this is kind of what i tell everybody everybody always asks what are you most afraid of in wildlife they always think cougars, bears. I feel, and I'm like, no. You know what's number one? Moose are number one. Every close call I've had has been with a moose. I've been chased three or four times. Actually, just this winter, I got chased by a bull moose that was in the backyard, and he was mad about the snow. We darted him, and I was not darting this time. I was a second, and he came charging at us, and we barely made it around the house before he tried to stomp us. One of the our officers was drawing his firearm to kill him because he was so close. But that was that was pretty scary. But the most the most memorable one with the moose that I can remember is I had to go back out in this back country. And this is, we usually don't have to do this with moose very often, but um, this moose was kicking vehicles as they drove by in this area. And it was pretty dangerous public safety issue. So I, and one of my specialists went up there. Um, we kind of made the assumption we were going to have to euthanize this moose because it was very aggressive. It had been standing near the side of the road for several days. Um, we pulled up there. We were probably almost 100 yards away from her, and we were getting shotguns ready. I wasn't going to euthanize her if I didn't have to. I was going to let my specialist take care of it because, you know, on my team, I like to spread the love around when killing things because after killing enough things, and you talk to anybody in depredation nuisance, it just drains on you. It's not that fun to kill things like i don't it, hunt very much anymore it just weighs on you the amount of things you have to euthanize because you just can't put deer back together with a vet from a vet and send them back out the door it's just not possible they have to be rehabbed and then they're dependent on humans and then they become dangerous for another reason and it's kind of a mess unfortunately but this moose she spotted us after we were about done getting ready and she came running straight up the road at us, and I stood in front of the truck because I was like, "Ah, oh, he's got this. She's definitely aggressive. We just need to take her down. It'll be fine. He shoots and misses. And I'm like, oh, crap. Well, I'm loaded, ready to go. And he waited, so she's probably 30 yards at that point. As I, and if you don't know, moose are big and can move really fast. As I am standing in front of the truck, I bring up my right, my shotgun, and she's seven yards when I finally pull the trigger. And we're using, a, like, a home defense round that, fragments and and explodes like fragments inside and luckily she dropped right there i hit her right in the chest and she dropped but i mean if i hadn't got the shot off she would have rammed me into that truck and i might be pretty injured or dead by now but what happened with her was she'd gotten uh conjunctivitis or you know people know that as pink eye in humans right and in wildlife we see it in deer and moose and elk and, and a lot in moose these days, it tends to scar their eyelids, so then they become blind. And she was mostly blind, but could see straight ahead in just part of her eye. And so that's where she was keying on things and attacking. And she'd keyed on us because we were up in a vehicle, and she came charging straight at us to just take us down. So, unfortunately, she wasn't going to survive through the winter because she was going to stand there and just starve to death. So it was, unfortunately, probably the best thing to do, but it was probably one of the scarier moments with the moose which i've had several unfortunately that's crazy yeah that's not seven yards mm -hmm. a thousand pound animal yeah well 800 pounds at least yeah running straight at you yeah well thank you randall i appreciate you sitting down with us it's uh wildlife management is challenging but it can also be fun yeah they're not like plants you can't just walk out every day and see your see your uh, subjects sitting there what was your last thing? What has your, been your favorite part of working on the study? What is the thing that you will look back and be like, that is the moment I knew I was doing what I wanted to do? I really liked working with the guides and their involvement and just seeing how excited they kind of were about the, uh, the project. Like I really found when somebody else is interested in what you're doing and they can get on board with it, like even some of their... Um, people they were guiding talked to me when I was there downloading GPSs. They wanted to know about it. They'd heard about it. They were excited about it. And I thought that was really cool because they were behind the research. They were like, hey, this is something we find interesting. It's It wasn't all just about hunting for them. They had a passion for wildlife in general that just 
kind of was like, hey, this is really good for me. And then it was really fun to drive up there every day. <laughs> it's really pretty up there. Uh, yeah. That's cool. Uh, yeah, you got to see a cool side of social science. Yeah, which like I didn't allowing, think I'd like. <laughs> yeah, allowing people. Because, I mean, you never know what your data is going to be like. But the fact that you got such good quality data from willing participants, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Randall, for sitting down with me. Yeah. Appreciate it. No problem. I wish you well Thanks. in wildlife management, <laughs> especially coming out of this time of year. Everybody, have a great day. Stay wild.